Welcome to Good God, Conversations That Matter About Faith and Public Life. I'm George Mason, your host, and I'm delighted uh, to have another installment of American Faith uh, with our guest today, the Reverend Dr. Daniel Cantor, who is the Senior Minister of the First Unitarian Church of Dallas, Texas. And Daniel, uh, we're so glad to have you with us. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. It's, a, it's an honor to be with you. You and I have done a lot of things in our city and uh, look forward to talking to you. Great. American well, and religion. <laughs> that's exactly right. And I, so let me say a little more about uh, how we know each other and what, we, what you do and, and why we're doing this, this particular program. So, um, you know, we're, we know each other uh, because we're colleagues in Dallas, but also because we uh, are um, co-conspirators for good, we hope, uh, in uh, Faith Forward Dallas uh, at Thanksgiving Square and uh, with uh, our parent company of This Good God podcast, uh, which is uh, Faith Commons and things that we do uh, for the matter of the common good and social justice in uh, Dallas and in Texas in particular. Um, so we find ourselves at the table a lot and sometimes in the street and often with a pen, uh, figuratively speaking, uh, writing statements and speaking and trying to create a better community. And we do it from a religious perspective, um, each of us from our own religious perspective. And while there's a lot of commonality at times, uh, we want to emphasize some of the distinctiveness of different expressions of American faith in, in this particular uh, podcast series. So uh, among the various religious organizations that we can identify uh, in America, uh, the Unitarian Universalist Church uh, is uh, one of the few uniquely American experiences, you might say, uh, birthed in this country, regardless of um, its longer roots elsewhere. Uh, but Daniel, tell us a little more about who are the UUs and where did you come from and how, how do you think about where you are situated in the larger religious framework uh, of American religion? Yeah, well, it's a, that's a big question, but we, you know, we, we do go back uh, to 1700s in America where they, you know, these Unitarians and Universalists at the time, it would have been two different faiths right. um, arrived in America. Some, many of them arrived right around the revolution. Uh, and so it's their sort of progressive religious perspectives really fit the turmoil of the time mm. when people were trying to make a sense of the faiths that they were living in. And we would really land very, very firmly in New England um, as the Unitarians breaking off from the Congregational Church, uh, the, the inheritors of the, the Church of the Pilgrims. And yes. then the Universalists were really defrocked ministers from the Methodists from England who mm -hmm. came over to America. And those two faiths ran parallel really until 1961 when they um, merged. And so we are one of the only faiths in America with two theological names <laughs> combined, thus yes. Unitarian Universalists. And, and I think we should say a little more for, for people who would recognize that part of the spiritual movement that uh, connected with the UUs was the New England Transcendentalists, right? Absolutely. Uh, yeah. The Transcendentalists were 
the sons and daughters of Unitarian ministers from that early phase. So from mm-hmm. ministers who were running churches in, in the Boston area, especially mm-hmm. in the 1800s, their children like Emerson and Thoreau and Margaret Fuller and lots of others, literally their children revolted against them. And yeah. really what they wanted to do was blow the doors open of the church and say, well, there's this whole natural world out here that we're finding our spiritual lives in. And that would sound right. very familiar to people today because we absorbed in America a lot of that sensibility that religion didn't mm-hmm. have to be contained in a book right. in a church by the word of a minister, but could be experienced in the world mm-hmm. in very different ways. So the transcendentalists were... Um, Mm -hmm. Emerson, the most famous, who was a Unitarian minister himself in Boston at Second Church in Boston and left because he felt the the communion ritual was empty, that people weren't coming to it genuinely. And so he, as as an act of conscience, and I think he was also not so good with people, but (laughs) (laughs) he left the ministry for a more fruitful career in writing and speaking. Yeah. Right. So I, I think maybe just even clarifying for people a little um, further, uh, the language of Unitarian should be opposed to the language of Trinitarian, right? So yes. uh, explain that a little more and then we'll and then go to the Universalist side as well. Right? Sure. Yeah, the Unitarians st- really started going back, we can go back to clearly, very clearly to the 1500s in Romania and mm-hmm. Poland and Italy. They were humanists, meaning they were really interested in um, how the human mind could evolve. And they were studying, and right around the time of the Gutenberg Press, they were, they were getting access to documents and they started reading these things and saying, this doesn't make sense. What we're reading doesn't make sense to us theologically. And they mm-hmm. started to question the Trinity, especially mm-hmm. around the divinity of, of Jesus. And uh, so Unitarian, that Unitarian question, which really developed into churches in Europe, came to America in the 1700s. And then early in the 1800s, really after the revolution, they really took hold. But I served King's Chapel in Boston, which was founded in the 1600s, was the Church of the King of England. And Mm. in in the 1780s, they had a, a debate about the prayer book. And they were looking at the Trinitarian language and they were looking at the Bible and they said, we don't see this. We see son of man. We see these things. But to them, that that meant that Jesus was more man than God. And so those Unitarians, which are a bit of an anomaly in the story, but they're in my experience in the in the late 1700s, changed the, the language in the prayer book from Trinitarian language to Unitarian language or to what we would call like a God that was more mystery, but one, not embodied in the Jesus. So then in the early 1800s, they really defined it, which was they argued that Jesus was man, not God, that we are inherently good, not inherently sinful, and that salvation was by character, um, not by uh, the choice of the divine being. Uh, And that really defined them over and against Trinitarianism. And in fact, even going back to Europe, Unitarianism was a derogatory term (laughs) given to them by the Trinitarians at the time who were in Europe were trying to squash that kind of heresy 
uh, in that. Well, uh, and, and I think perhaps one of the most famous martyrs uh, in, was uh, when uh, Michael Servetus, who was a Unitarian, uh, was, um, was burned at the stake uh, with the blessing of John Calvin. Yeah, not uh, only, one of the most grievous times of yeah, yeah. Uh, the Reformation. Yeah, yeah, not only the blessing, but he was actually Servetus. I think had a little bit of a death wish. He and he and Calvin were in uh, school together in in Paris, and and then eventually uh, became enemies. By Servetus would take Calvin's books and annotate them, and then send them back to Calvin, and right. vice versa. And then eventually. Servetus was caught by um, and put into prison by the Counter-Reformation in, uh, in France, and he escaped somehow. And mm-hmm. where did he go? He went to Geneva. Of all <laughs> so, places. Yeah. Right. And then, and then you, in Geneva on Sunday under Calvin, you had to show up at church on Sunday or you were fined. So right. Servetus was sitting in the back of Calvin's church when he was arrested and then tried. And there's there's some documentation of those trials and it, yeah. that was a crazy thing, but, but it was basically sure. the same argument that Servetus right. read the Bible, said he believed he saw a, a man who we could follow. And that was one of the, also an important thing for them mm-hmm. that a perfect God was to them uh, something that they couldn't follow the example of. They had to, mm-hmm. they, they felt like they needed the human being. And that's why they, that Unitarians at that time and, and in New England and even today, the Unitarian Christians say, we, we follow the teachings of Jesus, not the atonement, not the miracles, not these things. And, and so there's a whole long history on all. Right. So I, I think that should lead to the, the point, too, that what you just described as Unitarians who say we follow Jesus and we follow his teachings his way of life and and that sort of thing leads some Unitarian Universalists to say that they are within the camp of Christianity. Yes. While other UUs are not as willing to identify as such. Can you describe the the distinction there? Yeah. And I think the, the door to which that tent got bigger or opened was Mm. the, was, was the transcendentalist who started studying Mm. Hinduism and Buddhism and, Mm-hmm. Uh, and really saying, you know, there's truths in all these religions. We don't, we don't have a monopoly on the truth. And so from really from the transcendentalist mid-1800s on, Unitarian Universalism then evolved, especially Unitarianism, evolved to be a, a, a bigger tent faith. Mm-hmm. Some stayed very t- closely tied to the Bible and to the story of Jesus, Mm-hmm. Um, the church I served in Boston was a Unitarian Christian church. We had right. every we had a lectionary and we preached out of the Bible. Mm-hmm. We right. you know we preached about Jesus you know almost every yeah. Sunday you know like right. and that was important. The distinction being it wasn't Jesus who saved the world; mm-hmm. it was the people who follow. It's it is the people who follow the teachings of Jesus who do save the world. Mm-hmm. That that distinction. Right. Um, and then many of my congregants in Dallas would have all kinds of beliefs. And, and it's not my job to indoctrinate them with a kind of belief system. It's my job to open them in dialogue with themselves, others, and the holy 
to uh, find meaning and truth. And that that's what the evolution of the Unitarian side has sort of provided us. Now, the universalist side, universalist language is about universal salvation, right? So there's, there's a critique of uh, a Christian doctrine of heaven and hell where some go to one place and some to another based upon their choice or decision about Jesus. And, uh, and so universalism uh, was a separate movement, but it, it merged with the Unitarians. Can you say a little more about that? Yeah, so that's, yeah, there's 200 years plus of history there. Uh, and mm -hmm. Universalists were Christians, they were Trinitarians, and they came from England. As I said, the Methodist ministers who got defrocked and kicked out, uh, John Murray was the most famous who arrived. There's a, there are these miracle stories in, in, uh, in a Universalism where Murray's boat got grounded on a sandbar at, in uh, Cranberry Point, south New, south in New Jersey, and lo and behold, while they were waiting for the tide to change, Murray went in to town and met this farmer, Potter, who had built a chapel on his property and was waiting for a universalist preacher to come <laughs> and, yeah. and spread the word, right? Uh -huh. So that was 1770, and, and from there, it became, at one point, it was one of the largest um, sects of Christianity in America, right. um, because what they were saying was, you, you, you don't have to um, have special favor from God. Once you, know, once you are a, a Christian, you are saved, and there's no conditions on that. God mm -hmm. loves humanity, created humanity, and that which God created would not be condemned to burn in, for eternity. Mm -hmm. And there were all kinds of universalists that, you know, had different ideas about this. Some believed that you had to spend some time in punishment for what you did. Some believed that you didn't. The ultra-universalists, they were called, believed it didn't matter what you did. Uh, you, were, you were free, and mm -hmm. um, you, would, you would be free of any kind of damnation. Uh, so they didn't believe in hell, uh, basically. Yeah. And... and that heritage then uh, was also combined with a couple things. One was this incredible optimism that you, that you could not give up hope on anything <laughs> and mm -hmm. anyone. And secondly, a real strong heritage of doing good social justice work in the world. So they were both anti-slavery uh, people. They were about liberating prisoners um, the, and, and reforming prisoners outside of punishment. Um, they did a lot of work with people, uh, you know, in the streets and et cetera. And so that, that heritage also lives very strongly in us. Yeah, I, I want to go there for a moment with you, too, because I think um, if, if people only had a passing acquaintance with Unitarian Universalists, uh, in their communities, probably what they would find is what you just said. And that is that in every possible way that you might find religious leaders gathering to promote social justice and the common good in a community, you will find UU uh, faith leaders present. Uh, and yet 
Um, one might, from the outside, think that if you're a universalist, that you might not have a high degree of um, moral urgency, you might say, because there's no sort of threat of hell involved in that. There's no, uh, you know, what what is the motivation to um, <clears throat> to do what is good and 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 the like, and yet it's really part of the DNA of the UU tradition that you are very deeply engaged in that. So can you say some something yeah. about where that motivation comes from and where that sense of uh, uh, ongoing um, and, and really dynamic engagement uh, really falls? Yeah, sure. Um, so, my, so my best understanding of that is, on the one hand, it was easy to, to become a universalist and also easy to leave universalism in, <laughs> in the 19th century because, right. you know, after a while, they, people said, oh, I can do I can do anything. So so I could just go to the gambling house on Sunday morning. And, right. and they said, yeah, because they're you know, the universalists, their highest value values were both love and and, and freedom. And so I think what happened was in the founding of the institutionalized versions of universalism, because remember, this was just a, an idea that, that was bubbling in the church, but it only became a real church itself in America. When they institutionalized it, they founded it on this notion, not that, uh, that, that, that once one, that, that basically they preached that when Jesus Christ had saved all souls, that was it. But yes. the, the, so the salvation wasn't something that urged us to action. It was acting out and imitating the pure love of God. Yes. Um, and that that love was so strong uh, in the world that we could not stand by while others suffered. And so um, almost like, like a bodhisattva or, or a Buddhist who takes mm -hmm. the vow that no one is, is, is saved until all are saved in love, or no one is free until we are all free. The universalists had that same burning sensibility. Mm -hmm. uh, and they talked about, there are many, many stories just to prove that those, their point, um, you know, Hosea Ballou was a famous 19th century universalist, would tell a story that, you know, want, he'd go to a, go to a town and these were, you know, people in New England and he'd meet a farmer and the farmer says to Baloo, uh, my son is a terrible drunk. Um, he's a, he's a wasted, you know, wastrel. He, he's a, he's no good for any, anything. And so Baloo would say to him, okay, so what we'll do is tonight when he's coming home from the pub, we'll make a fire next to the, the path he's walking. And when he comes by, we'll push him into the fire and the, the farmer would say, no, how could we do that? He's my son. I love him. And Baloo would say, so why would God do the same to, to you? And then beyond that, what is your responsibility um, to act out that deep love for your son? Mm -hmm. Not to punish, but to reform. And so I think those are the kinds of threads yes. that are in universe, Unitarian Universalism now both on the Unitarian side, the right to conscience, the, um, the, the dedication to dialogue, freedom, mm -hmm. and uh, 
free religious pursuit and on a universalist side, this requirement to practice and to, to try to practice deep love for the world. Um, and that and that's what, and that's what we see in your work. Yeah, I, I, hope, I think. I hope. <laughs> yeah. I well, hope. you know, it, it, one of the things that tickles me is you know we were on a call the other day uh, and uh, we, I guess, had gotten to waxing philosophical a bit uh, in this interfaith uh, group that we had, and you sort of raised your hand and said, uh, "Okay, I know I'm always the one to do this, but I'm not going to let us get off of here before." Uh, we figure out what we're going to do. You right. know, what 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 are we? What action are we actually going to take as a result of these ideas that we have? Uh, we we're not finished until we do something. Yeah, and and a lot like the rabbis of of the civil rights movement, or even mm-hmm. you know the ministers who were marching in civil rights, they would say, you know, it's it's well and good to pray and to to enact our spiritual lives on issues of the world, but we have to put our feet on the ground. And, right. and that's where, that's where we have to go. And that might just be me, but it is a theme in Unitarian Universalist churches very strongly that, right. uh, that social justice work, that work to, to bring about a greater good. Now, you know, Lord knows what a greater good is these days with all the confusing kind of, of course, things coming of and course. going, but, you know, the sense that for us, that evil restricts freedom, that Mm -hmm. um, evil um, oppresses human life, or tries to create a conformity around an idea, Mm -hmm. um, and thus a behavior in the world, that that has to be addressed. So, you know, there was a great article Mm -hmm. in the New York Times this week about some of the the Christian nationalism, and I'm, I know I'm talking to a Christian here, yes. that is trying to conform a political reality in our country around this Christian ideal that, if I'm studying theology correctly, isn't really uh, an agreed upon ideal, but is an ideal. To right. us, there's an evil in that because mm-hmm. it, it it can become oppressive to every other per- person who believes a different thing. Um, right, and, and, and Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, the great sure. variety of people in our country. Right, and and one of the points of this American faith series that we're we're talking uh, with different people about is that uh, both in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, we have uh, the um, security of uh, a, both non discrimination and complete religious liberty. Uh, for people, which also includes the freedom not to believe uh, and to be treated equally before the law. But the lived experience of people uh, since the beginning of uh, the colonial days and certainly since constitutional America as well, uh, doesn't always match that ideal. So part of what uh, the goal is of the American project is to say, Here's, where, here's what we say, and now can we catch up on the ground to our ideals? And so, you know, Faith Commons is an organization that is trying to do that, Faith Forward Dallas as well. And so I, I guess one of the things I would ask you, given that 
you brought up Christian nationalism and Christianity has been in the many, many forms of Christianity in America since its beginning, uh, in a sense, sort of the default religious identity of the majority of Americans, uh, which um, has created uh, a sense of um, yearning for place, you might say, of every other religious conviction and and group. Uh, what would you say about where you see us today? And as a Unitarian Universalist minister, what would you want people who are not you used to know about um, your convictions and your vision for religious life in America? Yeah, that's a good, really good question. I wish I had gotten that question before we got on this. Uh, but I'll, I'll take it on the fly. I mean, one of the, just to, to put a historical note on some of this, you know, we, we're, we're pretty good at claiming some of those founding fathers who worked on that constitution. Um, mm -hmm. So to us, it's no surprise that there's liberty uh, and justice for all as, you know, part, part and parcel of some of those original documents. Um, the Adams, you know, John Adams and family right. are buried in the, the uh, crypt of the Universalist Church in Quincy, Massachusetts, and some of the others, we claim people like Jefferson, although he never was really institutionalized. Part right. of us. He just argued with the miracles. So we, yes, right. we, we you, like you claim him. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but yeah. some of the, I mean, I know that uh, George Washington was in the King's Church where I where I served many times and all that stuff, mm -hmm. but. I think it makes sense to us uh, as Unitarians because of all of what we talked about already that there's this strong strain of religious liberty. And, um, and you know, to, to this point, my, I see my faith as, you know, we used to use this term like beyond Christianity, but I don't, I don't even think there's a, you know, there's a trajectory there that it makes that much sense. I think we are Christians, we are non-Christians, we are atheists, we are agnostic, we are the Unitarians all at one time. I mean, I can tell mm -hmm. you that the church that I serve, there are people sitting next to each other who are atheists and Trinitarian. Some believe that when you die, nothing happens, and some believe you go into heaven and everything in between. And to me, that is the vision of America, because we can hold the tension of those various beliefs. We can use a common language, which is theological, historical, um, spiritual, in all kinds of different ways. And we don't have to force on one another a kind of religious faith. And that, to me, is the beauty of things that, like, Faith Forward Dallas, where we're not evangelizing each other. We are holding each other in esteem for who we are as religious people and, and who we are as part of this American culture. And we're working together to, to, to change things in our society around issues of poverty and oppressions of all kinds, racism and whatnot. So to me, you know, we, we have to hold onto that foundation very strongly. What we see in America with senators proclaiming these Christian nationalist 
perspectives that are driving these kinds of conspiracies is, uh, to me, very damaging to that foundation. Uh, And, you know, if I was, if I was a Christian pastor, I'd be looking for ways to reclaim what the language they're using. I feel kind of exempt from that because they think I'm a heretic anyway. But, (laughs) but, But I'm also trying to make room for all those ideas right uh, at the same time not allowing some ideas become oppressive over others and that is incredibly tricky business it, that- it really is you're, you're right it is tricky because uh ironically the people who are trying right now in the name of christian nationalism to uh claim uh the high spiritual and moral ground that they feel for the country in order to put it in a favorable position before God, at the same time feel both morally and spiritually superior and yet um, uh, under attack and victimized um, by not having the preeminence that they believe they deserve to have. And this is the the challenge for us as Christian ministers is, yes, I know that we make a similar confession of Jesus as the Son of God and our faith as being followers of Jesus. And I'm not trying to put you in a position of now being outside of the grace and mercy of God because we disagree. But uh, if, if, if you disagree with me, you still have a place on the, in the American landscape as well as in the church. Yeah. But if, if I disagree with you, I'm not sure I do, you know, and, and that's true for America generally, right? Yeah, but that's also the roots of fascism. <laughs> yes. And so, you know, it makes it right. very difficult to both be um, someone who promotes genuine inclusion, which is part and parcel of my faith, and someone who is, you know, I mean, just the universalist heritage, which says, you know, God loves all. Mm-hmm. Like my, my people are always asking me, so does, does God love that guy who wants to kill yes. us? Yes. Uh, and the answer still is yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and the answer is always that there is grace enough to bring people into the circle of love um, mm-hmm. and the community of love, but not at the expense of the community or the circle itself. And that's where I think there has to be some hard lines drawn and some accountability, especially as we're talking, you know, the, you know, the post-capital invasion. And uh, now we're, you know, there's a, they're into impeachment and all this stuff how do you hold people accountable but also hold them in love and that's a real challenge um, well it is but you know I, I liken it i always go back to an image um in my mind of a principal who has to enter the playground at recess and who sees that the children are cowering and uh they're fearful of a, a particular bully and his um uh friends who are dominating the playground and making it impossible for everyone to experience the intent of of that freedom that is supposed to be recreation time at at recess. 
Now, you can say, well, you know, you should respect the bully because God loves the bully as well as those he's bullying. But at the same time, the entire enterprise is being held hostage by someone and he has to be held accountable so that everyone can have the, the blessings to, to flourish together. And, and I think this is part of the tricky challenge, isn't it? Yeah. And then I'm not sure in that metaphor, if in our country, the principal is the bully or is God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. And those would come to, those would bring us to different conclusions. Right, sure. If, if the bully is the principal, then the teachers are going to have to work hard to yeah. reform the whole system, which I think is what we're seeing. If the bully, if the principal is God, then God's love has to help those around the bully um, hold mm -hmm. that bully at, at arm's length and mm -hmm. um, and not and not force that bully into um, more bullying activity <laughs> or you right. know, but it's really hard. No, um, it is hard. It, yeah. it is hard. It's it's the same thing we're wrestling with uh, with friendships today in this highly charged political environment where people have deeply uh, different views of things. We find it hard to talk to each other, to socialize, to know where to find the humanity in each other and to celebrate life as, as neighbors and human beings when we have so much passion that's built up in us. Yeah, yeah. And it, you know, for my people, it used to be that, you know, evangelical Christians were scary because they believed different things than than we did, or that really mm -hmm. on the extremes, they believed the earth was 6,000 years old and things mm -hmm. that seemed irrational to us. And that shifted. So even in 20 years that I've been here, my people used to complain a lot about those kinds of encounters and being asked if they've been saved. And, and now we're, now they're talking about actually much more extreme versions of that, of, of being sure. seen and known as a danger to society because they don't conform to certain right. kinds of Christian beliefs. And this is where it's kind of, um, you know, one size fits all religion for society just cannot redeem us. Yes. <laughs> we have to find ways to honor each other and, and leave room for so many different beliefs. And, and we're, you know, the Unitarians are, are far in that, deep on that spectrum because right, right. we have our roots in, in the, the congregational Christianity um, and we've moved and he tried to just evolve and change and not hold so tight to those things that we have to be what we were 200 years ago. Right. But at the same time, not cut that off. And we are we can be blamed at times for cutting those trees off at the roots um, mm -hmm. and, and then almost creating completely new perspectives in religion that, that in, in my circles, my, some of my colleagues who can't reference back to the Christian or the Judaic root um, have lost track of what's important. Mm -hmm. So, so in any event, that's. Yeah. Well, Daniel, um, thanks for sharing yeah. perspective of the UU tradition with us. And uh, I, I especially want to say thank you for the work you do uh, side by side with uh, others who have different religious perspectives, but uh, together we're working uh, to make Dallas and uh, the world at large, uh, the kind of place that uh, we think God envisions for us. So uh, it's good to talk with you and thanks for being on Good God. Thanks. That's so great to be here.
All right. Very good. Good God is created by Dr. George Mason, produced and directed by Jim White. Social media coordination by Cameron Vickery. Good God, Conversations with George Mason is the podcast devoted to bringing you ideas about God and faith and the common good. All material copyright 2021 by Faith Commons.